This is one of the Center's new series, Lore Civil Society Perspectives on the Emerging Digital World. Each discussion will be a call to action for civil society organizations to take a more active role in shaping our digital future. My name is Barbara Iverson. I teach interpersonal skills and intercultural management at Code University of Applied Sciences here in Berlin. And I will be your moderator for tonight's discussion. Today's topic is, is Africa falling prey to data and cyber colonialism? We are taking a look at the question of cyber colonialism in Africa. What are the problems and what might solutions look like? Today, we are pleased to have three panelists with us and we're gonna take a few moments now to hear from them. Jean-Louis is coming to us from Dakar. Hello everyone. There you are. Um, I'm very happy to be with you. I am uh, from Senegal, from Dakar. I am a lawyer, I am a professor, I'm a researcher at the Virtual University of Senegal, which is the sixth public uh, university here in Senegal. And we are involved in uh, in process like digital things and uh, also we are doing very basic things, but we are the one who are engaged in Senegal with others in this debate around the topic of digital matters. I'm very happy to be there and I thank ICS Center, Barbara and uh, Carl for having me today with, with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jean-Louise. We'll come right back to you in a moment, but welcome, it's great to have you with us. Second, Karen Guevara is speaking to us from Washington, DC. Hi, good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for the International Civil Societies that are putting this together. My name is Karen Gavada. I am the founder and president of Equanimity Foundation. Equanimity Foundation focuses on inclusive, sustainable, and transformative global development. A little bit about my background. I started my career in microfinance, and thereafter, I transitioned to working at the United Nations. I've worked for the Department of State, also the Pentagon, and and several both for-profit and non-profit organizations, which have allowed me to travel overseas quite a bit and mostly throughout Africa. So I'm excited to be here and have this discussion. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And our third panelist is Sally Nduta. She is currently in Nairobi. Thank you. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are. I'm really happy to be here. My name is Sally Nduta. I work at United Disabled Persons of Kenya, commonly known by its abbreviation, UDPK. I work as a programs manager. I'm a disability rights advocate, working to ensure that persons with disabilities are meaningfully engaged in development, in politics, and in all spheres of life. So we'll engage later. I'll tell you more about what we do, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Great. So we'll take a few minutes now for each of the panelists to talk a little bit more about what they do and share their sort of opening statements in this topic of whether Africa is falling prey to cyber colonialism. So we'll go back and start with Jean-Louis. Thank you, Baba. Uh, I was saying that I'm very pleased to be among you today because what I'm invited here is maybe due to my column I have published in Jeune Afrique. Jeune Afrique is one of the most popular magazine in, in, in Africa. And uh, I had published a column on uh, cyber colonialism. I know that the word colonialism 
can make a lot of lot of souvenir in the very French of of, of this uh, of this word, lot of souvenir and and sometimes bad souvenir. And it it was more like a uh, like in in a provocative way that I have uh, chosen this, this term of of colonialism and, and, and cyber colonialism. So what is the problem here we are facing in Africa? I'm very happy Nuta is here because Kenya is one of these African countries that can really integrate very well these technologies, etc. And Kenya is, is really an, an, an example of how African and young African can use these technologies and use it in, in a very useful way in a in a very useful manner. So the, the problem is not how to appropriate this technology. The problem is how we can in Africa not only be consumers and also be able to be producers. And the, the big debate is to produce contents in the internet, contents that can serve the daily life of Africa. The, the other issue is if you are not aware of the importance of the data issue, maybe we will not be able to move from uh, consumers to, to producers. What I have right in, in Genafric, it was more of a wake-up call than a, a denunciation of, of a situation. What I see around me is young people not being aware of the importance of data. They are transferring their, their data to the international big tech firms without any reflection, thinking of importance of what they are doing. This column was written in, the, in, in a context of uh, COVID-19, where the government was thinking about uh, putting up, uh, like many apps we have in, in Africa to, to tackle the problem of COVID-19 in having this tool, this app, uh, being able to, to say well, who had the disease or who in your whereabouts, if you have people, we, we already have the, the disease. In France, they have a, an app like that that did not work very well. And at some time in Senegal, we are thinking about setting up this kind of app. But we have this opposition of the young boys and girls utilizing Twitter, Facebook, and also who were just fearing the government use the, the data for other purposes. And the question was, why do you agree when it is Facebook, Google, and so to give your data without any kind of reflection? You always agree to give your, your data to Facebook, to Google, and so But when it comes to the state, the state, there is always reflection, and there is always people saying, I can't, I don't, because it's not safe, etc. And that's the context in which the reflections comes to me. And in a center we have in Paris, which is the International the Center for Digital Human Rights, we have this reflection in Africa, how we are going to face, how we are going to do to face the, the, the issue of data and sovereignty. Because African countries on this issue need to face it in a different way, to put it in a different way. I will, if you allow, I will come back on, on it uh, on my on my the one second second term. Thank you, Barbara. Yes, we will definitely come back to this. There's more to be said. Thank you so much. Karen, 
Wonderful, will do. I prepared a few statements for today. And again, I'm really thankful to the International Civil Society Center for hosting this very important discussion. My journey as a practitioner of development and security, and now as the founder of a nonprofit organization, is intrinsically linked to my identity as a Salvadorian American. I was born in El Salvador and grew up seeing entire communities being decimated by civil war. By living through that conflict, I learned early on about the power and resilience of communities who survive, overcome conflict, and manage to build back up. It gave me a stubborn belief in the need to empower communities to be in charge of actionable change. These learnings have transferred to our organizational ethos at EQF. Local communities are stakeholders in our activities on the ground and our actions are always data-driven and data-informed. We are currently developing a capacity-building project in Afghanistan through our program, Her Voice in Peace Building, and the curriculum development for the project was informed by the data collected from Afghan women who stood to benefit from the final program. Or take, for example, our humanitarian assistance in El Salvador, where we use data to identify the most vulnerable populations in need for trauma-informed care and food security. Conducting research and developing programs for Global South countries is characterized by a wide range of ethical complexities, especially for organizations from the Global North that are entering these regions with their own set of privileges and advantages. In the past decade, we have collectively understood the power of big data and its ability to predict and dictate human and organizational behavior. It has warranted some very critical conversations about the asymmetry of information that exists between international organizations and the communities and governments in the global south. We often overlook the fact that data comes in many forms, not only in numerical and survey data that can be analyzed and processed, but also in images, videos collected from the field that capture the most intimate and vulnerable moments. Western organizations are known to use these visuals on their websites, their social media, marketing campaigns, and to make a case for their access to difficult subjects or challenging geographies. Without providing a narrative that represents the subjects, of the visuals as empowered, and instead almost always choosing the narrative of poor, desperate, deprived, and disadvantaged. But let's talk about research-centric numerical data. We must remember that data points are just stories of the lives of broken down into micropackets. We must treat these data points with the same respect, sensitivity, and accountability as we would treat personal accounts of individuals who are sharing some of the hardest and most personal details of their lives. Perhaps the most important determinant of the ethical use of data is accountability. Coming from an overt position of power, it is the duty of civil society organizations to set strict standards for data collection and reporting and be answerable to local authorities and communities for the quality and scope of data being collected. For the work we undertake at EQF, our primary focus is the well-being of the individuals we're trying to serve. And this support cannot be sustainable if we keep them out of the process. I'd like to highlight the system set up by a partner in Nigeria dealing with refugee rights and women's rights. They have created a women's network and empowered the members to lead the activities of the network, providing requisite training to also collect and sort data for the projects being designed and executed. This ensures local ownership and supervision of data and prioritizes a grassroots approach to program goals. I'm very honored to be part of this event and to learn from my fellow panelists about the prevalent issues regarding data ethics in African countries, 
As a woman-led organization with most of our team members from the Global South countries, EQF is an ally in the cause to demonopolize the control of data and empower communities to be in charge of their data and their destiny. Thank you. Thank you so much, Karen. All right, Sally, share your statement with us. Thank you very much, Barbara. I would like to speak from the perspective of a segment of the population that is uh, normally uh, marginalized and is mostly at the periphery of you know, mainstream discussions. I was asked to showcase a little bit about data because as an organization, we also collect data. My presentation is about, you know, I'm just showcasing uh, how we collect data uh, as an organization and how we analyze and what are some of our experiences. So I will start by giving you a very briefly about who we are as UDPK. We are a federation of organizations of persons with disabilities in Kenya. We are a civil society organization, a membership organization representing various categories of persons with disabilities. Currently, we have about 100 member organizations in our database. It is important at this point to briefly define organizations of persons with disabilities because not so many people understand who they are. These are organizations governed and managed by persons with disabilities themselves. They are a platform for representation and to give a voice to persons with disabilities to articulate their issues and interests. A key mandate is to advance and advocate the rights of persons with disabilities. So they are formed around a slogan that many of you may have heard or maybe not. It's known as nothing about us without us. That means that persons with disabilities and their representative organizations want to be consulted. They want to be involved in matters that concern their lives, but generally in a development discourse. So what do we do? We lobby and advocate to mainstream disability in legislation, in programs, in planning. We do a lot of disability awareness to address barriers. Persons with disabilities in the world today face a lot of barriers, barriers to accessing information, accessing, you know, even services. Physical access is a huge problem, especially in many of our African countries. Part of what we do is creating awareness to remove barriers, and we work a lot with governments and other development agencies to create awareness so that they know how to remove barriers. And also, importantly, is to also remove the stigma that is associated with disability, which is also very strong, especially in African countries. We also monitor implementation of uh, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, SDGs, and other international treaties, our national laws and policies. Relevant to our topic today, we are very keen on research because as an advocacy organization, we are well aware that we need evidence to be able to inform our advocacy work. So we are really keen on advocacy. We do work in partnership with INGOs, with uh, academic institutions to come up with uh, you know, research and, and proper information about relevant issues, especially those affecting persons with disabilities. As UDPK, Umbrella Organization, we are very keen on capacity building organizations of persons with disabilities, commonly known as OPDs, because we cannot be everywhere and many of our members are spread across the country. So we do build their capacity. And for us in Kenya here, we have local governments, which have a mandate of planning and uh, budgeting for service provision and, and programs. So we do not want persons with disabilities to be left out. We, we build their capacity so that they can monitor allocations by governments. Something that we are also very keen on is enhancing participation of persons with disabilities in governance and decision making, because we know that when you're not in the decision 
making table, then you're in the menu. So why do we collect data as an organization? We do want to learn about our members. So we, we keep a lot of information about our membership uh, organizations, what they are, where they are located, what are they doing, etc. So the other thing, as I said, is we gather evidence for advocacy. We also collect data and put information together for purposes of capacity building our members. So we'll put together, for example, two kids. We develop a lot of articles and, and, and disseminate that through various media for creating awareness, both internally for our members and also for the general public. Whenever we want to gather baseline information about an issue, we also gather information through baseline surveys, situation analysis, etc. As a civil society organization, we are donor funded, so we do put together information to report on our program activities. When we also want to demonstrate the perception of persons with disabilities on pertinent issues, we also collect data. For example, we have done Kenya's constitution turned 10 years old last year in August. So we did a perception survey on the, how persons with disabilities felt in terms of how the constitution has changed their lives. And these are some of the images of this, what we do. And those are the reasons why we collect data. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you so much. So in preparing for this debate with this topic of cyber colonialism in Africa, the elephant in the room, in a sense, is that it was quite difficult to find people interested in talking about the subject. And I wanted to raise that initially to say, why might that be? And give all three of you the opportunity to share your thoughts on that, but why might this be a topic that people either don't want to talk about or aren't sure? In my view, colonialism itself, it's a very controversial issue. It's very disturbing issue, and people don't want to remember what happened in the past not in a way to find guilty persons. I think it is not the question now. The question is not again. And not again in this digital era is how African themselves can wake up and see this new revolution as a new chance not to be left in the station by the train. And this is the point we are defending. In a theoretical point of view, my column and my position is to put in this global context of post-colonial studies. I am in post-colonial studies, where you can see Africans saying now we have a word to say, we have a place to be, etc. And the place to be now is digital place. Africans need to say their word in this digital world. And I think if we put it this way, this topic would be less controversial. I, I recognize that it is a little bit controversial, but if you take it another way, let me just in few seconds say something. All of us who are, who are involved in studies, in digital studies, et cetera, or digital stuff, et cetera, we all may know this old paper published by Lawrence Lessig on Cody's Law when he was showing us that the technical norms are superior to the ethical and legal norms. And what we are facing in Africa, we are facing it everywhere in the world, but maybe more in Africa than elsewhere, because in Africa we have this issue of illiteracy that increasing all the situation. In all the big cities in Africa, you will see people with smartphones, but do they know what are the real challenges 
behind these smartphones. That's why I was saying it is more about a wake up call than making someone guilty of something. I'm not here to say you are guilty, you are the nice guys, etc. This is not my point. My point is how in Africa we can take advantage of this situation and say to all, we have this false revolution, we have our place in this revolution. We have to gain our place in this, in this revolution and how to gain our, our place is to fight to determine the, the content. And I'm very happy to see, because yesterday I had visited the website of Karen, I'm very happy to see that Karen is in the same fight because she's very involved in Africa, empowering women, et cetera. And this is what we are fighting for. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Sally and Karen, what are your thoughts? I think colonialism just generates a lot of guilt and shame among community, not just those who have faced it, but also communities whose ancestors were involved. I think people are reluctant to talk about it because it actually makes them self-reflect and see how they may be actually benefiting from the power structures that create that inequality. And, you know, earlier on with colonization, it was for raw materials, for resources, for people. But now today it's data, right? It's valuable and it has a lot of power. And so we need to really leverage that power for good. And I think when people don't do that, then, you know, it, it really makes them question as to why. And when they're faced to question their practices, I think there's a reluctance to not want to confront the reality. I want to agree with my fellow panelists. I mean, colonialism is something that people don't want to, you know, talk about or they want to wish away or they don't want to deal with it. And then um, I think also in Africa, it's still seen as a Western problem. Like, for example, I saw the other day, I think the owners of Facebook and these other big companies being questioned. I think it was in the U.S. I think this is still new concepts in Africa in terms of digitization and, and the powers and how to use data. Like, for example, even in Kenya, we just recently enacted our law around data protection. And uh, not so many people know what the content is. It has taken a very long time for the government itself. I'm just wondering whether you had tried even contacting government officials because government plays a huge role because they come up with laws and policies to regulate the whole question of data. So I'd say, you know, how people handle people's data and information is still a subject of discussion. It's also a question of rights. How many of us as Africans know our rights in terms of how our data needs to be handled? So for me, there's a gap there in terms of awareness. How many people know their rights in terms of how corporations, government, you know, manage and, and, and share our information? And share the example of Kenya. And many of us, sometimes you'll get text messages from whichever company and you wonder, how did these people get my number, for example? So... Yeah, so my question to you is, did you try to contact government officials to participate in this debate and, and, and share with us their side of the story? Thank you. Yeah, these are important questions. Appreciate what you've all said, that colonialism itself is a very tricky word and brings a lot of baggage with it on many sides. And so perhaps framing it with different language is also helpful so that it's not this feeling of blame or shame, but also looking for solutions and talking about it that way. I want to get back to a concept of sovereignty that Jean-Louis talked about, because I think sometimes when we think sovereignty, we think about national sovereignty and the role of governments in that. 
And I'd like for you to talk just a little bit about when you mean the sovereignty of data. Is that talking about on a national level? Is that on a personal level? Can you talk a little more about that? Not a, a, at a national level, because we have in Africa sometimes very small countries and no one of these countries can face a big farm like Google, etc. And we need to go together to tackle this problem of data. And that's why if we put it another way, if you take the states as we know it generally, the state is organized around this principle of separation of powers. But if you see the big firms, tech firms, they are not organized in, in separation of power. All the powers are in the hand of uh, one big firm. Now, if you take Google, you have all the powers, uh, the judicial, the legal, etc., executive power. They are all in, in, the, in, in one hand. And it is a very new uh, shape, uh, a very new uh, organization and facing the states. And the states, they don't have enough power, mainly in Africa, they don't have enough power to face this new configuration of uh, international relations. That's why for, for me, the answer is not from a state to another, but the answer is like European Union did with the GDPR. The answer is how African countries can unite maybe within organizations like African Union to have one response uh, to this issue of sovereignty. Because we can be Senegal itself cannot be sovereign when Senegal is facing Google and Facebook. There is a symmetrical relation here, very strong, and it is a problem. That's why for me, the, the solution is in big organizations like African Union to fight. But internal, in the domestic regulation, one have to promote also tools like National Commission of Protection of Data. Not all the African countries have this kind of organization to, to, to protect and, and promote data and to protect and promote privacy. That's what Luta was talking about. It is also about privacy. It is an education to privacy. And, and I think in, in, the, in the world we are living in, it is important in African country to promote also awareness about privacy. It is very important that information we are transferring, we are giving are very important information. And universities like a virtual University of Senegal are participating in this fight to promote privacy, to promote also awareness around all these issues linked to digitalism. Sovereignty is now has changed. It is not the sovereignty we knew before how Rousseau and etc. has theorized it. Uh, sovereignty is a very new concept, a very new concept because sovereignty is facing the power of uh, these big international tech firms. Barbara. Thank you so much for that. Sally, I'm curious on this topic from the perspective of a local NGO, how do you see the role of the local NGO in terms of sovereignty of, of information? Thank you, Bob. As a local organization that is an organization of persons with disabilities that has to fight for its space because many times organizations of persons with disabilities are not recognized even by other NGOs. So others want to speak on behalf of persons with disabilities. For us, sovereignty would be about 
even the partnerships that we engage in, for example, the research studies that I just shared with you, how do you structure the agreement and how do you give us the roles? And especially from even donors themselves, what roles do you want us to play? Do you want us to publish that? Do you want us to own the data which is being collected in our own country? And these are real issues. There are times when uh, we've had to have very long negotiations because or disagree in terms of how this data will be published. And there are situations whereby we have refused to you know, enter into partnerships because from how partnerships are structured, it looks like it's not going to benefit us as an organization of persons with disabilities. So for me uh, and for us as UDPK, it's about the partnerships that we are engaging in and publication of data. What rights do we have on that? Just the power play between, you know, the Global North donors and also the Global South. We also have INGOs in between. This is a debate we've had in Kenya and it can be, you know, a sore topic because also many INGOs feel like uh, sometimes national organizations do not want to work with them or they feel like INGOs are taking their roles. So for us, sovereignty is, are you giving local organizations uh, power? Do you see them as equal partners in research? So for us, those are the key issues. Thank you. Wonderful. Karen, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Coming from an international foundation that works with multiple different countries, what are your thoughts on sovereignty? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I don't think of it as data sovereignty. Instead, I think of it as data ethics and accountability. I think sovereignty just, it's a might type of concept. Whereas with accountability, we need to hold stakeholders who are in these organizations, like international organizations accountable. So let me tell you a little example. Earlier, I mentioned one of our partners in Nigeria. We actually do spotlights where we are not intermediaries, where we are asking for donations so that we receive them and then we give it to them. I think that's just a middleman type of mentality. And instead, what we do is we'll do like a spotlight on them. We will share information and actually encourage donors to go to their website to communicate with them directly. Because I think our role is to increase awareness rather than try to skim a little bit of money from the top, because that's not really helping build local capacity, right? Like we should be there to support them, not the other way around. That's why I think accountability is so important because it's not just, you know, taking their stories for us to fundraise, but rather taking their stories so that others can understand what it is that they need and how they can be helped rather than us being, again, intermediary in this situation. Yeah, thank you so much. I do want to confirm that we did not reach out to any governments to be part of this, but it was all just to members of NGOs. So possibly that would have been a different response, but we won't know. <laughs> we had a question from Mr. Bakum about how to protect, this is uh, primarily for Jean-Louis, but I am happy for anyone who has thoughts on this to answer. And that's how to protect African startups and ensure fair competition and what the stand of African government should be on international agreements that regulate data flow. I think it is a more combined response that a single state response. I think that at the state level, the first thing is to have all these regulations that are set, to have these regulations step as a response to this data issue. When I say regulations set, I, I, I mean all the laws, all the rules you need to be present in this new world. And it's not the, the case everywhere. You have this asymmetrical situation 
in, in, in African countries, country like Senegal have a new law on, on, on startups, etc. You have this commission on, on data protection. It's, it's not the case. And I think before responding, saying I'm present, you need to do what you have to do. And what you have to do is at the national level. And after the national level, you have also this African level with the African Union. And African Union has a, a, a key role to play in this issue, mainly in this period when African Union is talking about in this free trade era in, in within all Africa. And I think in this context of, again, forced revolution, the African Union need to say we were back in the last, in the previous revolution, but now we have to, we need to be in the first class train not to lose this new revolution. And I have, for me, it's combined action combined action from the state and from African global level. But let me say just one, one word on this issue. It is also a matter of investment, a lot of investment in, in equipment in the internet. The cost of internet in Africa is linked to the cost of investment. Internet is cheaper in the countries who have a, a seafront like Senegal, etc. If you go in the countries where have a seafront, internet is cheaper. And if you go deep in Africa without any seafront, internet is, is different. Why? Because the cables come from Europe. They come from Europe. And incidentally, the Europe have been present also in these different countries we have the seafront. And the technology is not equally distributed in these uh, different countries. And when you, when you see the map, internet map in Africa, internet map is also the, the seafront map. And I think that the African Union need to invest more to democratize the access to, to, to internet in the interland of African internet. Thank you. I think we have time for this last question that came from Laura. To try to boil it down a little bit is that what's the public opinion and those of governments and even how are those two at odds about um, American and Chinese big tech companies and their digitalization efforts for joint markets and partnership? What's the perspective in Senegal, in Kenya, in different places as you're aware of how public opinion is on those and how it might even differ from government perspective? Sally, do you have a perspective on this? Generally, I think being a consumer, many people will just care about how that is affecting their lives individually. So they not they're not caught up in the politics, you know, at the global level. But then it's an issue of is this accessible? Can I fulfill my needs as an individual? Let's say if I'm in business, if I'm a, if I'm a content developer, and I know in Kenya there are so many upcoming young people who are developing content. So for them, it would be an issue of cost. It would be an issue of access. So it's not a lot to do with the politics that we know that is going on. Thank you for that perspective. Karen, do you have anything you'd like to add on that topic of the public perception and, and how that's perceived? I think it's it's a really interesting question and one that's difficult to answer because a lot of these things are allowed to happen because of consumers not holding big tech accountable, right? And also governments not holding them accountable. And I think it's difficult in locations like throughout Africa where there aren't strong laws, where there's asymmetry of power to actually try to combat these giants. And so, you know, it's, it's very difficult. And I think it's important to actually 
tie back to that because I think the solutions that are developed need to be African-led. It can't be us telling them what they should be doing. It should be their perspectives. It should be their prerogative and it should be them leading the charge. So I think I will reflect back to my colleagues because I think it's their data and their destiny that they should be in charge of. I think in Africa right now, we need a lot of awareness, especially in terms of privacy and what that means. The debates that you're having in the Western world are very important because you'll find a lot of where the question of, uh, you know, these issues around sovereignty are still alien. By now, I think many of us know that, uh, for example, mobile technology is very, you know, now at home, it's very relevant. Very many people are accessing the internet, even on their mobile phones. And internet is relatively cheaper, like John Lewis has explained, in countries where you find that they have a cost online. So, and many people are getting a lot of information through the internet, especially now with the COVID situation, uh, many institutions are also, you know, teaching through online. So for me, I think the next big step, and I'll also speak as a Kenyan, we have quite a number of laws, like I just shared, we have our data protection law that just came in, but then the issue is always enforcing the law. How do we ensure that we enforce the law and that all relevant parties, even the international companies are playing by the laws and they are and they are following what is laid down. And then we ensure that the public is aware and they can demand for their rights to one, information, to privacy, and to develop content that tells the story of me as a Kenyan, I can be able to tell my story. I can be able to tell my story as an African, and that is respected, is seen as, you know, the true reflection of who I am as an African, as a Kenyan, and that I have, you know, rights to own that data. So that's what I'd say as the next big step. Thank you. I'm so glad that you said that. I'm so glad that you um, shared what you just did, because these are excellent words to end our discussion with. There are a lot of young people in Africa who would never let the government have access to the data that they're happy to give Facebook or Google or whatever other things that they hold on their smartphones. And so building awareness is key. Thank you so much to the three of you for being with us. Thank you to Karen and to Sally and Jean-Louis. Really appreciate you and your perspectives. I think now we've really gotten warmed up when we could talk about this for another hour. <laughs> Isn't it always that way? But I hope that for those of you who've joined us today, and thank you also for joining us, I hope that this is a topic that you will approach with people that you come into contact with in the tech world, people working in NGOs, whatever it is, that maybe the concept of colonialism isn't the, the step forward, but at the same time to be aware of these issues of privacy and how as a global community, we can look at these and have ethics, accountability, and awareness built into it. The next event is on Thursday, the 6th of May, and the topic is cyber conflicts, mediation, and peace building. You can already register to join the event on the Setters website via the digital debates section. Thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to seeing you on the 6th of May. On behalf of our wonderful three panelists and the International Civil Society Center, I'm Barbara Iverson. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next time.